Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the very first British rugby tour of Australia and New Zealand in 1888, so today I thought we'd follow that up with a discussion about an equally momentous tour, the 1888-1889 native New Zealand tour of the British Isles. As with the 1888 British tour down under, the native New Zealand tour has subsequently become the object of much rewriting of rugby history to present it as part of the seamless story of All Black and Maori Rugby Union. But the truth is somewhat more complicated than many of today's histories would have you believe. By the mid-1880s, rugby had gone from being a mere pastime in New Zealand to becoming a major public entertainment. Tens of thousands had flocked to see the 1884 New Zealand tour to Australia, demonstrating that rugby tours could emulate international cricket as a popular and profitable amusement. What's more, the general insularity of rugby's administrators left the field open for sporting entrepreneurs. It was Thomas Eaton, an Essex-born businessman now living on New Zealand's North Island, who took the bull by the horns to turn the dream of New Zealand rugby lovers into reality. He would organise the first rugby tour to Britain. If the Australians could organise successful cricket tours of the mother country, he wondered, why should he not do the same for New Zealand rugby? To maximise the tour's appeal, Eaton decided that it should be entirely composed of New Zealand Maori players. This was not because of any sympathies that he had with Indigenous rugby, but simply because he believed that it would be more profitable. In late Victorian Britain, travelling shows of African, Australian Aboriginal, Maori and Native North Americans were hugely popular with audiences, billed as the wonders of the British Empire. Such shows pandered to racist stereotypes through lurid promotions of so-called primitive behaviour. In 1868, the first Australian cricket team to visit England was an Aboriginal side, and they performed a boomerang, spear-throwing and dance exhibitions alongside their not inconsiderable cricketing skills. This was Eaton's model for a successful Maori rugby tour. Of course, as with many groundbreaking innovations, Eaton was not alone in his vision. Back in New Zealand, Auckland forward Joe Warbrick had exactly the same idea, but Warbrick had one advantage over Eaton. He was himself Maori. When he heard the news that a British team would visit New Zealand in 1888, Warbrick announced that he would try and organise a Maori team to play the visitors. The match did not take place, but it does appear to have brought Warbrick to the attention of Eaton. Warbrick provided the rugby brains and Eaton raised more than £2,000 to finance the tour to Britain. By the beginning of April 1888, 26 players had been selected by Warbrick, but Eaton was disappointed that they were not all Maori. In fact, only five had Maori fathers and mothers. Another 14 had Pakiha, or European, fathers and Maori mothers, but five had no Maori lineage at all. The team therefore became officially known as the New Zealand Native Football Team, a subtle but suitably imprecise shift of emphasis. The reality was that there weren't enough Maori playing top-flight rugby at this time in New Zealand. Players like Warbrick and his three brothers who also toured with him were exceptional. Outside of a small elite, Maori in general lived in rural areas at this time and took little interest in rugby. As the historian Greg Ryan has also shown, contrary to mythology, New Zealand rugby was always a largely urban game that drew its strength from the towns and cities and the bitter legacy of the mid-century wars with the British colonisers had led many Maori to reject British culture and its sports. It took Warbrick's team six weeks to sail to Britain. They eventually landed at Tilbury Docks, London's newest and most important port, on 27th of September 1888. They were given just six days to recover from the journey before they played their first match against the Surrey County side. 
On the 3rd of October, they stepped out onto the pitch at Richmond to make history. They were the first representative side from outside of Britain ever to play in England, and they were the first ever New Zealand side to perform a hacker and to wear what became the iconic black jersey and black shorts. They easily defeated a weak Surrey side, and the following week they defeated the much stronger counties of Kent and Northamptonshire. Much to the surprise of their English hosts, far from being curiosities from the end of the empire, the native team were formidable opponents. They played a further 22 matches over the next two months, winning 16. Four of their losses were to the northern powerhouses of Hull, Wakefield, Halifax and Swinton. But among their many scalps was the Ireland national team, whom they swept aside by five tries to two. Such was the tourist popularity in the north of England, the acme of British football, according to the Otago Times, that a number of crack northern sides, Brickhouse Rangers, Halifax, Hull, Widnes and the champion county side Yorkshire, organised second matches with the tourists. Thomas Eaton praised the Northern Sporting Press for their support, saying that they had become almost members of the Maori Brotherhood. By the time they came to play England at Blackheath Rectory Field, the native team had been so successful that, in the words of one reporter, there were not a few supporters of our winter game who looked with some anxiety towards the trial of strength between the mother country and the Maoris. The satirical magazine Punch even warned that by Jove, this is a rum age when a New Zealand team licks John Bull at goal and scrum age. To ensure that there would be no embarrassment, the England selectors named a strong side featuring eight players from future Northern Union clubs. It paid off. The English struck first as Morley's Harry Bedford scored two tries thanks to handling mistakes from New Zealand fullback Billy Warbrick behind his own line. But the tourists complained that Warbrick had actually grounded the ball on both occasions before Bedford could put his hands on it to score a try. Worse was to follow. Just after the second half had begun, England's centre three-quarter Andrew Stoddart tried to break through the defence but was grabbed by Tom Ellison, who explained later that, by a quick wiggle, Stoddart escaped but left a portion of his knickers in my possession. He dashed along and the crowd were awed, then suddenly discovering what was the matter, he stopped and threw the ball down. According to tradition, the New Zealanders' stop plane formed a circle around Stoddart to preserve his modesty. Believing that the ball was dead, they waited for the referee, who happened to be RFU Secretary Roland Hill, to order a scrum. He did not, so England forward Frank Evershed promptly picks up the ball and ran in to score a try in the corner. Incensed at the blatant breach of the gentlemanly code they thought the English upheld, three New Zealanders walked off the field in disgust. Eventually they were persuaded to return, but the spirit had gone out of the match and England won by four tries to nil. 45 years later, cricket would reverberate with accusations of hypocrisy and bad sportsmanship during the infamous bodyline English cricket tour to Australia. The scene at Rectory Field on that damp Saturday afternoon in February was a rugby bodyline in miniature. The England team and the referee Roland Hill were accused of failing to uphold the principles of fair play and violating the spirit of rugby. And, just as in cricket's bodyline crisis, it was the English who demanded an apology from their opponents for daring to suggest that they had not behaved as gentlemen. The tourist apologised, twice, but the tour now went on in an atmosphere of bad faith. When it came to the time to leave Britain and return home, there was no farewell, official or otherwise, from the RFU. The distrust was mutual. New Zealand captain Joe Warbrick believed that the tourists were tolerated only when they lost, but as soon as they commenced to win, they were hooted and the papers were full of the weakness of the home side and the rough play of the visitors. His experiences led him to conclude that, as a place of amusement, England is, I should say, the rich man's paradise and the poor man's Hades. Samuel Slay, a London-based New Zealand businessman who was Otago's representative to the RFU at that time, 
until the 1930s, overseas clubs and unions could join as individual members of the RFU, accused Warbrick of acting like a snake which turned its envenomed tongue against the bosom which had sheltered it. He also warned that the controversy could justify the RFU refusing its help to any New Zealand team which may wish to continue to come over here in the future. Observers may have thought that Slay was exaggerating. On the pitch, the tour had been a huge success, but as many would learn in the future, the RFU would brook no challenge to its authority on or off the field. And so Slay's prediction was proved to be correct. No overseas team will be invited to tour Britain by the RFU for another 16 years, and by that time, the face of rugby had changed irrevocably. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. And if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com. The next Rugby Reloaded podcast will be out in two weeks' time, but look out next week for a special announcement about my forthcoming book, How Football Began, a global history of how the world's football codes were born. Until then, thanks for listening.